Amen. Take your Bible this morning and turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. I know it says something a little different in your worship bulletin, but this is just one of those strange weeks. I uh, got home from the church yesterday after spending some time reviewing my message I had planned for this morning. I told my wife, I just don't feel good about what I've prepared. And then this morning, I uh, continued to feel that way. And, and I just believe that God is pointing me to a different passage and this may be a little uh, rough this morning. Uh, so there's the sermon. It's on a post-it note. Now, don't get encouraged. That has nothing to do with the length of time it'll take me to say it. Um, but I believe the Lord would have me share this with you today. One of the greatest or the greatest sermon uh, perhaps that has ever been preached was, of course, preached by Jesus and is recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, it's, uh, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus covered a number of subjects. Uh, he shared some illustrations. He ended with a powerful story to nail his truth home and to move people to the point of decision. Uh, it is a classic sermon. Uh, it's a short sermon, at least as it is recorded here, uh, but you should know that this really is likely the executive summary of the sermon. Uh, sometimes people will remark, uh, the greatest sermon in the world, pastor, only took 10 minutes. Uh, why does yours take so long? Uh, but the truth is, Jesus probably preached on this sermon for hours and hours and hours. And the people didn't have padded pews and air conditioning. Uh, they just sat on the dirt and they listened to him uh, share this sermon that is outlined for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It is, as I said, an incredible sermon. And Jesus would have said things in this sermon that would have surprised every one of his listeners. And I just want to highlight some of that. So if you look in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, this is one of my favorite verses in all of the sermon. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, God is searching for the person who is searching for him. Uh, God, is, God is wanting to bless uh, the Christian who has a desire, who has a heart, who has a thirst uh, to know God's word and to live for the glory of God. When we have that drive in us, that's when God wants to come alongside us and pour his blessings in our lives. If you have a hunger and thirst for the things of God, God will fill you and you will be satisfied with him. What an incredible verse. And then if we skip down a little bit, uh, there's certainly a number of verses we could talk about, uh, but I think chapter five, verse 27 uh, is something that would have surprised his listeners. And if we're honest, it's surprising to us today. Uh, verse 27 says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, the first thing that we see here, the surprising truth is that God does not draw a line for sexual sin at the place of physical adultery. 
uh, that is where traditionally we have drawn the line, right? We've said, well, if you cross this line, then you're guilty of sin. But as long as you stay on this side of the line, you're okay. And we draw that line there with that physical sin. But Jesus says, no, the line is not drawn there. The line is drawn at the place that you lust in your heart. And when, when you begin to think and when you begin to imagine and when you begin to lust in your heart, at that point, you're guilty of the sin. Now, he, here's what's interesting in our culture. Today, there is a battle uh, with the whole Me Too movement and all of the uh, things that you see in the headlines today, there is a battle about identifying when does sex become wrong. And today our culture says that the line is the line of consent. And certainly we would have to agree that that is a very important line. Certainly if there is not consent, it is sin. But let's understand this. The big debate should not be about consent. The big debate should be about lusting in our hearts. If we lust in our hearts, it's sin. The whole, the whole battle over consent, what we have to understand is that when you get to the line of consent, oftentimes you're on such a fast slope. You're on such a slippery slope. It is difficult to define consent sometimes. It's difficult to stop at consent sometimes. That's why the ethics of Christ tell us that it is, it is in our heart and our mind. And in fact, the Bible says, Jesus says that we ought to take this very seriously. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. Which is not talking about mutilating our bodies, but it's talking about the seriousness that we ought to take. You know, God's command to be to be sexually pure in our minds and in our, in our hearts. That would have been shocking in his day. Uh, it is shocking today. Then we skip down to verse 43. We find another uh, shocking, if not uncomfortable command. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. See, they, children resemble their parents, right? Uh, if, if you look at a child and you look at mom and dad, you can see some resemblances there. Very often, they look the same or they act the same, for better or for worse, right? And so what he says is that we ought to resemble our Father in heaven. Our Father loves people. He loves all people. And he even gives an illustration if we continue to read. He says, for if you... Um, well, well for, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God provides for all kinds of people. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? So he says that we ought to have a love that is not characterized by the kind of love the world has, we ought to have a love that's characterized by the kind of love that God has. Now let's talk about the difference between God's love and the world's love. Now the world's love says you love people who love you back. You love people you like. You love people who are kind. You love people who are generous to you. You, you love people that, that it is advantageous for you to love. And if it's not advantageous to you, then you don't love them. That's a worldly kind of love. But a godly kind of love says you love people regardless 
of whether they love you back. You love people regardless of whether they're generous to you or perhaps they are unkind to you. You are to still love them. And so here we have two poles. We have a worldly kind of love and we have a godly kind of love. And Jesus says that we're children of God, so our kind of love ought to resemble God's love. But you know, often when we talk about being loving, we're just talking about the world's kind of love. When we say that that person is very loving, we generally mean they love the people who love them back. And maybe they're very uh, good at loving the people who love them back. And so we call them loving. Well, it's not that you're unloving. It's not that we should be disrespectful to people who love us back. But to have a godly kind of love, to resemble our father, means that we're loving people who are unkind to us, people who are difficult to love. This would have... This would have been shocking uh, to Jesus's listeners. Uh, they, uh, they, they counted the sins against them. Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is something that, uh, that, that would have been on the tip of their tongues. They, they, they believed in, in loving the generous and hating the enemies. And Jesus said, no, let our love characterize, be characterized by the love of the Father. That would have been a, a shocking statement. Uh, but, the, but the sermon doesn't end there. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, we find beginning in verse 9, the Lord's prayer, the model prayer. He says, this is how you should pray. Look at verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So he gives us a model for prayer. This isn't something that we necessarily have to recite. There's nothing wrong with reciting this prayer, but, but it shows us the kind of things we ought to pray for. We ought to pray that God will be honored. We ought to pray that God will meet our daily needs. We, we ought to pray that God will help us to forgive people because God has forgiven us. We ought to, we ought to pray. We ought to pray. So here's a model prayer. Why didn't this say, wide-ranging sermon. Can you imagine what the sermon notes must have looked like printed in the bulletin for this sermon? Uh, go down to verse 19. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, live for eternity. Most of us live for today or, 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 or people who are super responsible and people who are big planners, they may live for 10 years from now. But, but Jesus says, no, don't live for today. Don't live for 10 years from now. Live for eternity. Um, set your priorities such that, that you're living for eternity. Spend your money, invest your money in such a way that you're living for eternity because when you, when you invest your money that way or you invest your energy that way, your heart will be pointed that way. You know, sometimes people will say, Pastor, I, you know, honestly, I've just sort of fallen out of love with Jesus. Now, I, I think a lot of times people think that. Only a few are brave enough to say it to the pastor. But uh, just in your heart, nod if I'm saying something that you fought before. I've just fallen out of love with Jesus. So what's the remedy for that? There, there will be times, relationships, every kind of relationships has, 
has its high points and its low points. What do you do when you fall out of love with Jesus? I'll tell you what you do. You invest in eternity. You, you invest more time in eternity. You start serving the Lord. You, you come sing in the choir. You go on a mission trip. You, you serve the Lord. You live like eternity is more important than today. You invest your finances in, in, in eternal things, in ministry, in churches, and in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what you will discover? That where your treasure is, and our treasure, that's our resources, our time, and our energy, where you invest your treasure, what does Jesus say? There your heart will follow. There your heart will follow. That's Matthew chapter 6. So we could talk about so many things. Uh, my, the heading in my Bible above verse 25 says the cure for anxiety. Uh, uh, maybe we need to all bookmark that page. Uh, chapter 7 uh, certainly is filled with many important truths. Uh, look at verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. It's easy in church life to begin to think that everybody we know is a child of God and will live uh, forever with the Lord in heaven. Uh, if you attend very many funerals, uh, and I preach a few funerals, so I'm not pointing a finger at others, maybe myself, but if you attend very many funerals uh, and, and you just learned your theology from funerals, uh, what would you learn? What would you come to believe about the spiritual condition of almost every single person in Nacogdoches? Uh, that they're all children of God. When was the last time you went to a funeral and the pastor stood up and said, this guy's got a fat chance of ever going to heaven. I don't know why you're here. Um, we just sort of think everybody, we're Americans and we love apple pie and Jesus Christ and baseball, we're all fine. Um, but Jesus said that it's a narrow path that leads to eternal life. That doesn't mean that some people uh, do enough stuff, or give enough money to get in and most people do not. But, but, but it's talking about it's a very narrow truth that leads to eternal life. It is only those people who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone uh, that are on that path that, that leads to eternal life. Um, I used to be a, an EE person. Do you know what that means? Some of you have been in church for a long, long time. I used to be a trainer and a, and a leader for evangelism explosion. And I, I, I don't know, maybe we ought to be doing that again. But in, but in those days, we used to go out every Monday night and we would we'd just knock on people's doors, complete strangers. And we got their names different, different ways from the, oftentimes they were new residents and we would uh, sort of bribe the, the water company to give us a list of the names of people who had just uh, started water service. Uh, sometimes we found out that the list was more filled with people who forgot to pay their bill and were starting water service again. So if you were a new resident or you didn't pay your water bill very faithfully, you'd get a visit by our church. And, and so we'd knock on the door, we'd introduce ourselves. And, but we always asked a question. Uh, suppose you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? And it was, a, it was a town a lot like this town and everybody had some connection to church and everybody had been to Bible school when they were a kid and everybody thought that they were saved. But let me tell you that most people, when they were asked that question, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? 
Hardly anybody ever got that question right. People would tell us all kinds of things. Well, uh, I should go to heaven because I've been baptized. I should go to heaven because I'm a good husband. I should go to heaven because I'm a great mom. I should go to heaven because I pay my bills. I should go to heaven because I've beautified my yard. I remember one guy, he gave us a tour through his garden, his flower garden out back. And he said, look at the beauty I've created. God's going to let me into heaven because of this. We heard all kinds of things. And, and actually, very, very few people would say, we don't, Pastor, I actually don't deserve to go to heaven. My only hope is what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. And I've put my trust in that and that alone. Uh, that's why Jesus says narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And few people find it. Um, that would have been shocking. Uh, he would have uh, been speaking likely to thousands of people. And uh, when he said narrow is the way, they would have all looked around and thought, well, what about me? What about me? And then skip down to verse 24. I want you to see the ending of his sermon. We won't read the whole thing, but I... I, I love to preach with stories. I, I tell a lot of stories, and I hope that's not a distraction to the truth. Uh, but Jesus, I copy Jesus. That's the way he did it. That's the way I like to do it. Uh, you tell stories that, uh, that illustrate a truth that's already found in Scripture, and Jesus does that. And he tells uh, a masterful story at the end of this sermon. It says, therefore, everyone, verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. He said, people who build their lives on God's word will be able to stand the storms. There will be storms. Everybody will have storms. Uh, whether you stand or fall will determine whether, by whether you've built your house upon the rock, whether you've built your marriage upon the rock. Uh, we need to build on the rock of God's word. But... What happened next? Now, I'm going to tell you something that I've, I've, I've never said, I don't think, at a worship service and won't say again, uh, so, so don't judge me for this. But I'm going to ask you to close your Bibles. Will you do that? And just, you, you can look this up later, make sure I'm telling you the truth. But I want to walk through the next two or three verses. Now, if your neighbor doesn't close your Bible, you can raise your hand. I'll come to him. Because um, I want to build some suspense. And, and, and I'm going to read it to you, and I promise I'll read the whole thing. I won't leave anything out. And you can check me when you get home. You can watch back on the video, see what I said. But what happened after Jesus preached this incredible sermon? I mean, there would have been weeping and tears. There would have been conviction. This, this was a sermon. So what, was, what would Jesus do next? And I can imagine, and, I, and it is my imagination, but... I can imagine when Jesus finished and he told that powerful story at the end about building your house upon the rock. And he looks them in the face and he says, have you built your house upon the rock? Amen. Sermon's over. Everybody's quiet. And there are thousands of people there, we believe. And Jesus, what's he going to do? He, he walks down off the little hill that he was standing on. All eyes are on him. I can just see the crowd parting a little bit as he, as he walks through, just giving him space. And he gets down to the bottom of the hill and something very unexpected happens. Now just let me read to you chapter 8, verse 1. So the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so the very next thing, chapter 8, verse 1, when he came down from the mountain... Large crowds followed him. 
It means every eye was on him. What's he going to do next? What's he going to do next? Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him. Now, you got to understand that leprosy was the dreaded disease of their day. There was no cure for leprosy. If you got leprosy, you died with leprosy. Leprosy was a, was a disease that, that was physically uncomfortable, physically terrible, terrible. Uh, you, you would lose feelings in your extremities, and, and so you would end up banging your hands or your toes against things, and, and, and they would become uh, uh, cut and, and infected, and, 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 and they would, you would, your fingers would literally rot off your hands, your toes, even your tongue, you would bite your tongue. You wouldn't know because you'd lose feeling and your tongue would become infected. And many people with leprosy lost their tongues. Can you imagine? And so there was this dreaded disease. It was terrible physically, but not just physically. It was terrible spiritually because the, when, you, when you had leprosy, you were banned from going to church in a sense. There was a place where people went to worship. Now we understand that we worship in spirit and truth and we worship in this place and you can worship at home. But in that day, there was one place to worship and they couldn't go. They were considered unclean. They couldn't go anywhere near the place. So it was physically terrible. It was spiritually terrible. It was socially terrible. When you were diagnosed as it were, with leprosy, you were separated from your family, your friends. You couldn't get around people anymore. In fact, when you walked down the streets, you had to, you had to hold a, a cloth over your face, over your mouth. And you had to yell through that cloth to all the passerbyers. You had to yell, unclean, 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 so people could run from you. So moms could grab their children and pull them out of the way so, so people could get as far away from you as they could. Could you imagine how, how terrible it would be if you couldn't even get near somebody? That's why they had these leprosy colonies because the only people they could get near were other people who had leprosy. Can you imagine if you were so separated from your family that, that all, all the contact you could have would be to go up on a hill and maybe look down at a distance on your, on your wife or your husband and the children and, and look at them from a distance and long to see them, but you can't because that leprosy would separate you from them. Leprosy would make it very difficult to communicate. Even crying out unclean, unclean, people would recognize that, that the syllables wouldn't always be pronounced very clearly because, because of the loss of the tongue that happened to many people with leprosy. And, and so you couldn't communicate, you couldn't talk, and it was, it was difficult and it was unclear. Leprosy was about the worst thing that could happen. Well, in the Bible, leprosy, while it was a real disease, leprosy is a picture of sin. Because sin does all of those things, Right? Sin causes pain. Sin uh, robs us of our future. Sin separates us from God. Sin keeps us from worshiping. Sin destroys our families. Sin separates us from our, from our families. Sin, sin keeps us from being able to, to communicate, to pray to God. We, we, we don't know how to pray because of our sin. Leprosy is a picture of sin. Or, yes, leprosy is a picture of sin. And, and sin is every bit as bad as, as leprosy. And so Jesus is walking off the hill and he's preached this incredible sermon. And then all of a sudden, who knows how he got in the middle of this crowd to start with. 
Here is a man who obviously has leprosy, and he's come right up to Jesus. Now, you didn't touch a man with leprosy. You would become unclean. You might get what they have. At least that's what they thought. And so, here's this man. He's, he's right in front of Jesus. Everybody's watching. What is Jesus going to do? So it says in verse 2, right away, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. So you can just, I mean, I want you to picture it in your minds. This, this, this man kneels down best he can, right in Jesus' path. It was unmistakable that Jesus was going to see him. He knelt before him and he said this, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That was his prayer. Not much of a prayer, let's just be honest. He, he, he says, Lord, if you're willing. He, he begins by questioning whether or not God would even be willing to do anything. God, if you care, if, if, you're, if you're interested in, in people like me, if, if you have a heart for people like me, if you're willing. Now, I think that's an important way to phrase that because I think sometimes in our sin, we think the same thing. If the Lord is willing, if the Lord really still cares, if, if I'm not burnt my bridges with you, Lord, if, if there's any hope, if, if you have any concern left, and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And so I, I just want to build a little suspense. I, I just want you to imagine everybody's looking, everybody knows this man has leprosy. Here's Jesus you know, a righteous man, a religious man would never touch or even converse with a man with leprosy. What is Jesus going to do? And let me just read to you. Jesus did four things. Four things happened. And it's in verse 3, and you can look that up when you get home. But just, I'm going to read it to you just a, a, two or three words at a time, a few words at a time. Verse 3 says, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him. Now, that's pretty significant. You didn't touch a man with leprosy. You kept your distance. But Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Now, here's the picture. Here's the spiritual picture. This man learned at that point that he was not untouchable. And what we need to know is that if we will cry out to Christ, that he will reach down and touch us. Because we're not untouchable. You have not committed so many sins that God's ready to turn his back on you. You have not come back to him too many times such that God doesn't want you to come back to him again. No matter what your sin is, Christ still loves you. No matter how dirty you are, no matter how unclean you are, no matter how diseased you are with sin. Listen, here's the good news. Everybody was wondering, what's Jesus really going to do? Here's what he did. He reached out and he touched this unclean man. And what would Jesus do for us? Jesus will touch us. Jesus is willing to, to listen to us and respond to us. We've not burned so many bridges that Jesus has written us off. This is good news. This, the, the crowd should have erupted in cheers when Jesus reached out and touched this man because it says for all of eternity that Jesus still reaches out and touches people who are unclean and dirty and rotten and sinful. Jesus touched him. 
You know, Satan lies to us, and I've heard these lies, I'm sure you have as well. Satan will lie and say, you've gone too far. You ever heard that lie? In your sin, you've gone too far. Satan will lie and say, you have sinned too often. Satan will lie and say, you have confessed too often. Satan will lie and say, God is tired of you. Satan will lie and say, you are broken. But what we see here is that that's not true. Jesus reached out and touched him. Now, I want to continue reading. Verse 3, reached out his hand, Jesus touched him, and he said this, I am willing. I am willing. The man had asked the question, if you're willing, you could make me clean. That was the question, is, is Jesus willing? And Jesus says, I am willing. See, here's, here's the good news. Jesus didn't have to think about it. It had already been decided. Jesus decided long ago that he was ready and willing to forgive all your sins. And Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. And he said to the father, father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. If there's any way we can avoid me going to the cross and bearing the guilt of the sin of all the world, let's do that. But if not, here's what Jesus said. If there's any other way, Father, but if not, I'm willing. And so this leper found out that Jesus was willing. And we can know Jesus is willing. It's, it, it, Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, I got to think about it. Well, here's the good news. He's willing. It, G, Jesus shows us this uh, with, the, uh, with the parable of the of, of the lost son, of the prodigal son. And so this man leaves his father, takes advantage of his father, uh, disrespects his father, goes off and, and, and is, is, is just lives a life of sin. And, and he finally, when he gets to the end of his rope, he comes back and, and his greatest concern is, what's my father going to do when I get back? And you know what his father did? He threw a banquet and celebrated the return of his son. Jesus said to this man, leprosy, separated, Jesus says, you're asking if I'm willing? Absolutely, I'm willing. And then the next thing Jesus said, Jesus reached out his hand, Jesus touched him and said, I am willing, be made clean. You know, sometimes we put the word willing together with able. You hear people say that, I am willing and able. Well, that's what Jesus says here. He says, I'm willing. I've already decided. I don't, have to, I don't have to give this any thought. I've already decided. I love you enough. I love you enough. I'm willing. And be clean. I'm also able to do this. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was in the garden, he said, Father, may this cup pass from me, but if not, your will be done. He says, I'm willing. But the story doesn't stop with Jesus in the garden. Was that the end of the story? No. Jesus went on to the cross. Jesus wasn't just willing to die for our sins. Jesus did die for our sins. He is willing to forgive us and he is able to forgive us because he died for our sins on the cross. We deserve death, but he is able to forgive us because he died in our place. 
And then very quickly, look what happened next. The end of verse three, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing be made clean. So what's going to happen? It says immediately, immediately his leprosy was clean. There was no trial period. There was no, well, I will, um, we'll see how things go, Mr. Leper man. And if you can live for me for long enough, I will, I will cleanse you of leprosy. No, immediately he was cleansed. There wasn't a list of uh, steps he had to take. Uh, Jesus didn't say, okay, well, listen, uh, here, here are 14 things and you get these things marked off and you come back and see me and then you will have proved yourself and then you will have straightened up your life and I'll, I'll cleanse you of leprosy. There wasn't a payment plan. He didn't say, uh, well, you know, a little bit at a time, I'll forgive your sin and I'll, I'll take the leprosy out of your left hand today and, you know, one more payment and I'll take it out of your right hand and then we'll work down to your feet and your toes. No, immediately he was cleansed. He was cleansed. So here's, here's the picture we see. Jesus finishes his sermon. He comes down. And he encounters a man who is just eat up with sin. That's, it's a picture of that, the leprosy. And Jesus says, I am willing and I am able to bring immediate forgiveness in your life. So my message to you is the same thing. Is that Jesus loves you. You've not gone too far. And he is willing in fact, he is anxious to forgive you. He is able to do it. And he will do it right now. There are two different groups of people, two different kinds of people who need to respond to this message. Some people have never put their faith and trust in Jesus to start with. You need to respond to this. You're the leper in front of Christ. He's already decided his part. The only decision that still needs to be made is yours. Will you trust in Christ alone? For your salvation will you allow him to save you immediately and we're going to stand and sing in a moment and there'll be people down here and then the ministers uh, me and mark and andre and the rest of the people who are here we'll hang out here after the service you can come talk to us let us help you be sure you've made that decision today but listen church there are a lot of us we're children of god but we've listened to the lies of satan and we realize today that we have leprosy, that we, we, have, we, we, have been, we have been wrestling with sin, and we need to come to the Father. And I say to you and to me that Jesus is willing and able and will bring forgiveness if you'll come to him today. Father, I love this story because Jesus was not just a man of words. Jesus wasn't just a sermon. As powerful a sermon as it was. it was, it was more than just a sermon. He finished the sermon, and then he saved a man. Father, we hear a lot of sermons, and they're, and they're important. But the question is, will we reach out and say to the Lord what this man said? Lord, if you're willing, and I know you are, you can make me clean, and that's what I ask. Father, help us to not walk away at the end of the sermon, but to find you and find cleansing. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.